Well, let's get back into our Bibles tonight. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. And we pick up again, Jacob is the main character at this point in Genesis, the main human character. God is the ultimate main character. But uh, Jacob here is what we're talking about. And he has left Padanaram with everything he has, his wives, his children, his servants, his hired men, his animals, his possessions. And remember, he was pretty much chased down by Laban, the father of Leah and Rachel, but he has made his break with Laban. And last time in Genesis that we were together, we saw that confrontation and it ended in a covenant. Uh, Jacob was God's chosen vessel. He's the son of Isaac. He's the grandson of Abraham. He's the one through whom the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are coming down through to his people. And so he is protecting his people. God is protecting his people, protecting his promise. And Jacob and Laban essentially agreed not to do one another harm. But if you remember, Jacob, Laban isn't the only person he has to worry about or to concern himself with. God had told him it was time to go back home to Canaan, but the reason he left in the first place was what? His brother Esau who wanted to kill him. Of course, Jacob had bought Esau's birthright for a pot of stew. He bought the rights with uh, which the, 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 the rights that go to the firstborn son. But more recently, Jacob, at the behest of his mother Rebekah, deceived his father Isaac to receive the blessing Isaac was going to give to Esau. I say more recently, but 20 years had gone by. But that's not a long time when you're considering that this was an honor and shame culture. Jacob had very good reason to be concerned about what Esau might do or try to do if they ever saw one another again. And Genesis 32 and 33 are all about that. We're not going to cover all of that tonight, but let's do look at 32. And let's begin by reading the first eight verses, chapter 32, 1 through 8. This is what we read. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We, have, we, we came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you. And four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. So Laban departed and returned to his place. That's how chapter 31 ends. And now Jacob is on his way back to his place. And as they separate and Jacob resumes his journey homeward. What do we see? The angels of God met him. Now recall, back in chapter 28, Jacob saw some angels then too. It was a dream 
in which the angels were ascending and descending on a ladder from the presence of God up high to where men dwell below. He, he saw that on his way from Canaan to Paddan Aram. And now he is again seeing angels on the way back. So there is some symmetry here with what's going on. God has ordained some symmetry here. And of course, this time, Jacob comes back a wealthy man. God had prospered him. But that said, if he were to ever encounter opposition, he would only have his family and a relatively small band of men to fight for him. He, he didn't know what was waiting for him in Canaan. If he did encounter Esau, since, since Jacob had spent so much of the past two decades working for Laban and not for himself, he, he has to assume that Esau has a much bigger company of men by this point. He, he would be right to assume that. So Jacob would have to completely rely on God for his protection. When he saw the angels then, Jacob had to have been comforted. If there were any lingering doubts in Jacob's mind about going back to Canaan, this was a reminder to him he was doing what God had told him to do and a reminder of how God had promised to be with him. Remember that dream, Genesis 28, verse 15. God had said he would keep him that he would that he would he would be with him and keep him wherever he went, including one day bringing him back home. And now, what do we see? It's coming to pass. Jacob, no doubt, also recalled that it was God who told him when it was time to go home. So this had to embolden him, despite potential trouble coming. The angels' appearance to Jacob, and it appears he is the only one who saw them. Their appearance was to strengthen his faith. This is God's camp, he declared, God's army. And the place was called Mahanaim, two camps, because there is now his own band of men and also God's band of angels who were undoubtedly more numerous and infinitely more powerful, of course. And having this boost of confidence, this strengthening of his faith, Jacob took it upon himself to send messengers to his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And that is in the southeast. It's to the southeast of what we think of as Israel, uh, southeast of the Dead Sea and, and, and Judah. Um, he learned somehow that that's where his brother was. And remember, Edom is the name given to that land because of Esau. Edom means red. And remember, you know, that, that's what he was like. But pay attention to pay, pay attention to how Jacob instructs his messengers to go to him. They are to address Esau as Lord, a lowercase l, mind you, but Lord, and refer to Jacob as your servant, my servant, his servant. Um, whereas Jacob willingly employed uh, deception earlier in his life to make sure in, in pride that he gained blessing, now he is more mature, he's more humble, and no doubt wants to be humble before Esau after everything that's gone down. He wants to not have reason to fear. He doesn't want to give Esau a reason to, to be hostile. He wants to find favor in his brother's sight. So along with the messengers, what are we, what are we going to see? He sends sheep, donkeys, oxen, servants. He wants to make this right. Well, in verse 6, the messengers come back and with news. He is coming to meet you. 
and 400 men are with him. Now, before we get to Jacob's reaction, let's think about this from Esau's point of view. Because, you know, time doesn't always heal all wounds, but it does have a tendency of numbing wounds a bit. To, it has a tendency of diminishing the heat to cool us off. And we're going to see that Esau was not, in fact, coming for blood. But why would he bring the 400 men? Because how could he know what Jacob might be thinking? He may have believed Jacob was coming with a large force to claim the land and all of the boundaries that God had promised him and that Isaac had blessed him with. And in the process of Jacob doing that, what was he going to do to Esau? Would he kill Esau? Would he subjugate Esau? How, how could Esau know this? And so Esau is, is basically just looking out for himself here, it would seem, bringing the 400 men along, coming to meet Jacob. Well, Jacob, on the other hand, verse 7, was greatly afraid and distressed. So, so like we who believe so often do, even though we know in our heads that, that God is sovereign and we, we can read the Bible and we can know that God is faithful like we so often do when we're faced with some kind of trial, we, we temporarily forget those things. We, we temporarily set those things aside. And that seems to be what Jacob did here. He temporarily set aside the reassurances that he'd received from angels in the face of a possible threat from his estranged brother. In the heat of the moment, he forgot he was at Mahanaim, that there were two camps there. He forgot, at least briefly, that he was under God's protection. So he does the practical thing. And it's a tactically smart thing to do. He divides everyone and everything into two camps. Two camps, okay? So that if Esau came to destroy one, the other could escape. He, he trusted in the Lord, but he wanted to act wisely. In the same way that, you know, it's, it's a wise thing for us to prepare for dangers like storms. Like, like protecting the home. But at the same time, the key part of acting in wisdom is realizing that ultimately we've got to rely on God. The Lord is our helper. You know, it's in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently and boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do to me. And that's what we see in Jacob here. And that becomes obvious in what we read next. Look at verses 9 through 12. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant, for, which, for, for with my staff... Only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Now, this is the prayer of a man who, by all human reasoning, was in a desperate and hopeless situation. So to that end, this is a great, great prayer for us to study. It's a great prayer 
for us as Christians to emulate because by all human reasoning, we are hopeless. We are desperate. So what is Jacob saying here? What is he doing? First, he he reminds God of his own words. Now note that. He reminds God of his own words. And of course, God doesn't need to be reminded of what he has said. God does not need to be reminded of what he has promised. But God delights when his people recall his word. Psalm 148 verse 2, God has exalted his word in accordance with his holy name. Now there are some today, and here in the recent past, I've come across some teachers, and some of them are very famous. There's one in particular I'm thinking about who... They criticize those who keep saying Bible, Bible, Bible. Some even say that, you know, we make an idol out of the Bible and we can't do that. I say that's absurd. We don't say Bible, Bible, Bible because we worship the Bible. We say Bible, Bible, Bible because of the word whose whose word it is. It's his word. It's God's word. The Bible is God's written revelation of himself to us. The Bible shows us and points us to Christ. It is our only means of salvation. It's the only means of salvation by which God saves us. It's revealed in the Bible, Christ. So Jacob reminds God of his own words. You told me, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, you told me to return to my country. Notice what else he does. He confesses his unworthiness. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. Here is the man who used to be the deceiver saying to God, I'm not worthy of the fact that you have not deceived me. What a statement that is. And then he speaks to how God had prospered him. He crossed the Jordan with just a staff, and now he has two companies, two camps. And so then comes the request, deliver me. I fear him. I fear Esau. Deliver me. You promised. Deliver me. And we can pray this way too, beloved. And we should pray this way too. Our prayers should be filled with God's own words. Our prayers should be filled with us confessing our sins, confessing our own unworthiness. Our prayers should be filled with our our requests, especially for deliverance from trials, from temptations, and directly from sin. Because God has promised us He would, through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and God keeps His promises. Beloved, emulate this prayer. Well, then what happens? Well, let's look at verse 13, going down to 23. So he spent the night there, then he selected from what he had with him a a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants. Every drove 
by itself and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in the front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all who followed the droves, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him. Well, he himself spent that night in the camp. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. When someone who trusts in the Lord has sinned against another, what does that someone do? He does what Jacob does. He or she seeks to make things right. He or she goes the extra mile to try to make it clear, I am sorry that I have sinned against you. And beyond that, to make it clear to Esau he wasn't coming to do Esau harm or take his possessions, he sent his own possessions to Esau. Hundreds of animals. As far as it depends on Jacob, he wants to be at peace with Esau. Just as Paul writes in Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's what Jacob is emulating here. He told his servants, keep your distance from each other with each group of animals so that in effect, Esau is going to be receiving a succession of gifts, five different groups of animals, five very large uh, gifts, and the servants were to make it clear each time, these are gifts to my Lord Esau from your servant Jacob. So Jacob began to move toward Esau, but not before sending the animals, the servants, the gifts before him. And the night, that night, he sent even his wives and the children before him. And look at the end of verse 23. And he sent across whatever he had. So now it's just Jacob. Verse 24, then Jacob was left alone. And what would happen next? Verse 24, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the th socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, But let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, 
because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Well, we read this and it's not hard to understand how or why it's been one of the most speculated upon passages in all of the Bible. It is difficult to understand everything here. Was Jacob wrestling a man? Was he wrestling an angel? Or is this some sort of dream? Is it some sort of allegory in which we're supposed to search for a deeper meaning? Let me put one thing to rest here, and that is there is nothing at all in this passage that suggests the writer, who was probably Jacob, for at least this section, there's nothing to suggest the writer wants us to take this as anything less than literal, as anything less than a real event that happened. This really happened just as it's written. So then, who was this man? Because the suggestion it was an angel in the form of a man can't be dismissed out of hand. Angels have taken the form of men before. We've seen it in Genesis, Genesis 18, when three approach Abraham in the form of men. And one is the Lord and the other two are, are angels. Then in Genesis 19 also, angels in the form of men are there and the Sodomites try to take them and use them to fulfill their lust before the judgment comes. In fact, if you keep a thumb in Genesis and you turn to Hosea 12, turn to Hosea 12. It probably would have helped if I had marked it ahead of time, but Hosea 12. Now, listen closely. Look, look starting in verse 3. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Now, who did that? Jacob did, right? In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. It says right there, angel. So there's an angel, right? Well, not so fast. Because the word angel is literally messenger. And there are other places in Scripture, including here in Genesis, we've seen that an angel can sometimes be more than an angel. Sometimes this word has been used to describe an appearance of God. And I've pointed those out several times. An, an appearance, as I understand it, of the second person of the Trinity, of, of, of the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus before he took on flesh. And I think that's clear here. Keep looking at, at verse 4. He wept and saw his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Verse 5, Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Now, I should point out, the New American Standard that I'm reading from, the His in Salt His Favor is capitalized. The Him in He Found Him at Bethel is capitalized. The He in and He Spoke With Us is capitalized. And why? Because this is talking about God. And of course, the decisions to capitalize are interpretive decisions made by the translators. But then there's this in verse 5. Even the Lord... Yahweh, 
capital L, little capital O-R-D, Yahweh, even the Lord, Yahweh, the God of hosts, the Lord, Yahweh, is His name. It's clear. It's clear Hosea, writing over a millennium later, understood this angel to be none other than God Himself. And back to Genesis you know, really, it's clear there as well. First Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Well, who blesses? Do angels bless? No, God is the one who, from whom blessing really comes. So Jacob was striving for blessing from God. Second, would an angel be the one to give the patriarch a new name? Would, would an angel be one to declare the one carrying the covenant promises given to Abraham a new name? I don't think so. But third, the angel tells Jacob he has striven with God. And finally, the nail in the coffin on this argument, verse 30, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face. This, beloved, was the pre-incarnate Christ. Let there be no doubt. So, what that tells us is this wasn't just any old encounter, but an important event in the history of redemption, an important event in God's plan to bring salvation. After all, Jacob was going to be the father of Israel through whom God's Christ, his Messiah, would come. But in human terms, Jacob was about to encounter Esau for the first time in 20 years, and it was his biggest test, his biggest obstacle in life thus far, carrying out God's plan. If Esau were to prevail over Jacob, God's purposes would be thwarted. So what transpired here was not a wrestling match like you see on TV today. There were no lights. There were no dramatic entrances. <laughs> there were no steel cages. It was a man and it was God in the form of a man struggling all night long until daybreak. Jacob's spiritual struggle was, was manifesting itself here in a real physical struggle. The, the reality of God's existence and God's presence were manifested to Jacob in a way no one had ever experienced before and really no one would experience after this at least until the birth of Christ. And even then, this was a completely unique revelation of God to Jacob. Jacob spent most of his life wrestling with people but now he was wrestling with God and the Lord saw that he had not prevailed against him. What does that mean? Because isn't God all powerful? Does this mean that Jacob was somehow as strong as God? Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't mean that. Does it mean that God was somehow dependent upon Jacob to carry out his will? No, it doesn't mean that either. A.W. Tozer has something insightful to say about this when he writes, The Lord cannot fully bless a man until he has conquered him. Think about that. The Lord cannot fully bless a man until he has conquered him. That Jacob struggled with the Lord all night did not make Jacob great. He spent all night fighting God, not realizing that by submitting to God... Would he really win? So God weakened Jacob. In the same way Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12 that, that God's strength is perfected in our weakness. 
God weakened Jacob to bring him into submission. He touched the socket of his thigh where the hip is. He dislocated it. And then God told him, let me go for the dawn is breaking. And Jacob is resigned to do so, but not before God blesses him. And as we saw in Hosea, this wrestling involved weeping. It involved begging of God to deliver, begging of God to meet his need. In his maturity, he contended, Hosea wrote, God has brought Jacob to the place he wants him. And now because Jacob would not let go without a blessing, God blesses him. And again, this doesn't show weakness in God. And it doesn't show that we can just be stubborn with God and demand he give us what we want. What it shows is that God rewards persistence when that persistence is met with dependence. Jesus tells a parable like this in in Luke 18. Persistence met with dependence. God will reward. Persistence in sin, God never honors. But persistence met by dependence, God always inevitably honors. God always inevitably inevitably blesses the one who does that. And that's what God did here. What is your name, he said. Jacob was the reply. And then, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and prevailed. Israel means he who strives with God or or God strives. And this is important for so many reasons, beloved, not the least of which is the fact the nation coming from Jacob's loins would be known by that name. Israel. But think about what Jacob meant. Deceiver. Supplanter. Jacob was a name reflecting falsehood, reflecting envy. And God's people would not be known as supplanters, but prevailers. So God, you know, Jacob became Israel. God asked Jacob's name. Jacob felt he must do the same. Please tell me your name, he says. Why is it that you ask my name, was the angel's reply. Jacob must have sensed who he was with. But as is so common with those who meet God, you you just want more of him. And the angel's response, why is it that you ask my name, was as if to say, Jacob, Israel, you know who I am. You know. And so God blessed him there. The content of the blessing, interestingly enough, isn't spelled out for us, but you have to think it's centered on God remaining faithful to Jacob, to to Israel, especially since Israel would be central to the unfolding of the promises of God for all of the families of the earth. Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would come, and, and, and all who trusted him would be eternally blessed. So as God left, Jacob named the place of the meeting, Peniel, the face of God. That's what it means. In the next verse, you see uh, Penuel. That's just a variant of Peniel. There's no controversy over the name there. Jacob names it the face of God. And as the sun rises, he limps on with a perpetual physical reminder of his struggle with God, a perpetual physical reminder that submission to God is where blessing is found. Submission to God is where the blessing 
is found. One final note, verse 32. Moses records for us that to this day, that being the day of Moses, Israelites didn't eat the sinew of the hip on the socket of the thigh. They, they wouldn't eat that part of animals. And when there was no one to carefully extract that part from an animal, they wouldn't eat the hind legs of the animal at all. And, and, and that's not something that the law of Moses told them to do. It's just something the Jews did in remembrance of this, of this, this struggle. Jacob prevailing, Israel prevailing. Some Jews don't eat that part of the animal to this day. And the point from all of this being, with Jacob and Esau's reunion and, and perhaps confrontation quickly coming, Jacob was trusting in God, but at the same time, a cornucopia of emotions was, was just boiling in him. His fear of his brother colliding with his faith, and it resulted with a struggle with God. Much the same way we, beloved Christians today, fear we fear what men will think and it results in our own struggles with God. But in his struggle, Jacob learned that submission to God is where blessing is found. Submission to God is where blessing is found. And God renamed Jacob Israel as a testimony that by God's faithfulness, Jacob Israel would prevail and keep prevailing. Indeed, even today, Israel will prevail. Why? Because of them? No. But because God is faithful. And He is faithful to those He saves today too. He is faithful to us. If we repent and believe and follow His Son Jesus, He is with us and will never forsake us. So may we trust in Israel's Messiah. While we may not, as Jacob did, see him face to face yet, may we take the testimony of his word by the power of his spirit and walk in faithfulness to him. Let's pray. Father, I quite simply just pray that we might submit to you. In, in Jacob here, wrestling with you, wrestling with emotions, wrestling with fear, we see that submission to you is where true blessing is found. Help us to know, Father, that the blessing may not be evident to us at first. It may not even be evident to us in this earthly life. But we are called to have an eternal mind, the mind of Christ, to see the inheritance that is waiting for us. To see how you are faithful to the end and beyond. Jacob struggled with that one minute to another, it seems, in this text. I pray that you might instill in us a readiness to submit to you no matter what that we might find from you, through you, and in you, true blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name, thanking you for what you've done for us through him. Amen.